This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. This week, your host, Michael Green, speaks with Sally Nichols, founder and managing partner at Nichols Family Lawyers. Sally has worked on some extraordinary cases throughout her career, including a groundbreaking matter involving sperm donor rights and an international kidnapping case that she led as an article clerk and first-year solicitor. When Sally began her own firm, pro bono work was central to her vision, to the extent that she had it written into the charter. And this passion certainly came to the fore when she was a guest on the John Fain radio show. Well, John Fain would have me on occasionally when his regular lawyer wasn't available and I would take calls and I really enjoyed taking those calls from vulnerable people, people who had family law questions um, quite spontaneously. And one really did grip me and it was a lady who said and explained that she'd been the victim of domestic violence, quite significant violence, that she was undergoing cancer treatment and as a result she had, when she was assaulted, her bones had broken and I do recall her telling me her pelvis, for example, had been shattered and it was just such an awful story. But she spoke passionately about her children, as all, all people do at the end of the day, not feeling sorry for herself, but she said her concern was the legal advice she had been given by two solicitors was that the father or the perpetrator that she alleged would actually have the children come to live with him when she died and she was terminal and she was frightened and and that advice just didn't seem right to her but she no longer had um, any money or funds to fight this and I actually remember catching my breath because if what she said was true and she appeared authentic and I of course supported her and I said look what you're saying I've actually run sadly a couple of cases is not right people don't parents don't inherit children by survivorship that if there is a more adequate person to look after your children once you've gone the court will be absolutely motivated to look at a proposal where they're not exposed to a perpetrator who's going to be potentially violent to them and who's been so shockingly violent to you. I remember looking at John, he looked uh, very sad and we, we both did and I motioned to him and said, I'll help her and that wasn't my role and he, he we had a bit of, we had a few sort of um, sign language going on between us. So we talked offline and having met this lady, we acted for her on a pro bono basis and we were successful. She did actually, um, her sister was granted joint parental responsibility with her for the children and she did come and talk to our staff about how she was in remission, which was, she she was crediting it to her relief at that time, but she just, it just made such a difference to her life. And why I wanted her to come and talk to my staff was I wanted them to really remember why they became a lawyer and that we actually can, if we impact on one life, it's a good thing. to Sally Nichols, who is our guest this morning in Lives in the Law. Sally, thank you very much for coming in. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Michael. So, Sally, let's get back to the start. In looking back over your life and professional and some of you, well, you're growing up, is a theme of great passion and tenacity and determination when you see injustice or you see unfairness. Did this start in your childhood? 
It certainly did, Michael, and I've thought about it and reflected on this quite a bit. My parents were um, advocates from a very early age for um, children, for example, with disabilities, and my dad often would talk to me about his work at the Nepean Special School, as it was called back then, and talk about what um, impact um, having a child with disabilities had on a family, for example. And he really um, was able to talk quite passionately about seeing the world through those children's eyes. And he'd been given an opportunity to study overseas through Rotary. He'd been given a scholarship. So mum and dad were very passionate about giving back. We're so grateful for that chance in life to live in the States, for him to get a a master's in um, special education as it was back then. And so we would be handing out Staminade at big runs and fundraisers, and they were very community-minded. So I think that that really was just something we just did. It wasn't something that we were asked to do. We were expected to go along with them and and give back because we were lucky. Yeah, lucky, lucky to have parents like that. This passion, tenacity, determination took a personal bent when you were in year 11 and you had a teacher who gave you a report which you thought was unfair. Oh, I'd forgotten about that story. Yes, um, I had a religious education teacher and I think this was a moment where I, my definition of Christianity um, became, I think, a little bit more subjective perhaps than that teacher's um, version. Um, she gave me a report card saying that I'd act, I wouldn't listen to other people's opinions. So for my attitude, I got a zero out of 10. So I got a B and that was a bit staggering for me because I was used to getting an A and I was a bit competitive and, and about it. But what I did is I actually um, held it up and I actually presented it to the rest of the class and I asked for their honest opinion about whether or not they thought that my attitude was anything along the lines of this, how this teacher had described. And did I listen to people? And, and they all were chorused. I don't think I, they were necessarily all my friends, but they all said that's unfair, that's not right. And I think what had happened between me and this particular teacher is that she had actually made a racist observation in relation to Indigenous people. I think I read Sally Morgan's story about her um, search for identity, powerful Indigenous woman, and it was before the stolen generation had really taken rise, as we know now, in the, in the newspapers. And we were being shown a picture of children being removed, Indigenous children, and taken into white families. And this teacher was endorsing that. And I had stood up and said, this is wrong. And um, that's, I actually think what you're saying is racist. So I've learned to be more diplomatic. (laughs) But I, I did, I called her on it. And she wasn't happy with me at all. It's an amazingly courageous thing for a year 11 student to do, particularly in a, in that context of a private school and uh, children at that time being obedient and being respectful. That was a gutsy call. Look, it, it is in a way, but it just felt um, it was just a natural thing to do. And um, I was actually reflecting at, with a friend who's a judge, actually, recently, that there was a young lady who was being bullied because she had a moustache. So we, we were at a very exclusive private girls' school, and um, uh, this this girl was being victimised and was actually huddling in a corner because she was being taunted about this moustache. And um, I told the girls to rack off in no, in colourful language, and um, and I went and actually reported it. And I was very unpopular with my class for a little while. They they soon forgot about it and moved on to some other drama. But I remember the stares of um, of oh, just um, rev- I was really reviled at that time. They were not happy with me at all in terms of having 
done that. But it, it was wrong and I was tall and I was strong and I just didn't care if I was unpopular for a little while for doing it because it, it was just, uh, yeah, wrong. You go to Melbourne University and do law and arts. Mm. Had you always wanted to do law? Had law been something on your radar and you'd um, had an ambition to be a lawyer or did you take it because it was, you had the marks for it? I, I had the marks for it and I think it was probably that competitive edge of thinking well, I wanted to do something that was worthy of the, the results. I had looked at journalism, but my work experience showed to me that um, you were edited quite strongly in journalism, so I'd, that wasn't for me. Um, also, I did have just a sense, there was a sense of maybe being able to be more empowered in my passions, I think. What was your experience like at university? Did you enjoy it? And uh... oh, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> had a lot of fun. And, and made some lifelong friends and um, it was still interesting because I remember if I did actually put my hand up to answer a question in those large lecture halls, I did still feel the stigma that I was a girl putting my hand up. So so in what decade did you do your law? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I just spoke to the Monash Law students last night and they were born in the 90s. I did it in 19, 1988 to 1994 from memory or 1993. Okay, and then so the numbers of women doing law still at that stage were very small. They weren't small, funny enough, but but the girls just didn't tend to have voices. Uh, it was really interesting, and maybe I was lucky to have gone to an all girls school. So I was used to putting my hand up, and but what I noticed was that there was just a tendency for the girls to be quieter. I think the numbers were fairly even, funnily enough, at that time. But it was um, just as I found in my legal career in terms of girls progressing to senior associate and partnership roles, there just seemed to be um, an unwillingness to be as proactive as the boys. One of the things that you say helped you in your law degree was taking notes for a hearing impaired student or students. Mm. How did that come about? How did you get the opportunity to do it and what was the effect of doing it? Well, it was incredible. I was I, I needed to have um, about three or four jobs to keep myself uh, living independently and there was a, an ad for a um, note taker for a, a hearing impaired student and I felt dreadfully um, guilty about the fact my handwriting is awful. I did have to fess up about that, that I'd, I'd have to really work on that and we didn't have laptops at that time so it was all... All the notes were handwritten and I met um, Rebecca and it was interesting because my marks weren't certainly as good as some of the other applicants and I'm sure that uh, my handwriting was appalling compared to theirs. But Rebecca and I hit it off and you wouldn't believe it but we worked out that her father had been great friends with my dad who and that and her dad was one of the inspirations for why dad got into special education So and he was hearing impaired. And they were very close family friends. And we couldn't believe it. I remember working out the connection and telling my dad about it too. So dad was principal at Victorian School for Deaf for many years. Did you work with Rebecca throughout the term of her degree or until she graduated? No, no until I graduated. I had her only for, I think, 18 months. Um, but it was wonderful. And I really enjoyed um, doing it. And we had, a, we had a column for just gossip and we had a column for torts and, um, and legal process. And I'm actually pretty good at torts because I had to do it a couple of times, you know, having helped her. And she was great. And had a positive influence or positive impact upon your own marks, I assume, by having to 
It did. Really give some thought to what you were... My best subject was conflict of laws and I studied that in final year where you had to revisit all different types of black letter law but you had to look at uh, an international focus, um, forum issues and I think having re-engaged with that study, probably probably more diligently this time, (laughs) it helped but I really enjoyed torts. I thought that was a terrific um, subject. After uni you took a gap year. Why did you do that? And and would you recommend gap year? I mean, they're quite common now with young people finishing year 12 and possibly finishing university. Was it a positive thing for you to do? It was absolutely wonderful. I worked for a touring company called AAT Kings and Australian Pacific Tours. And I worked as a receptionist and an accounts clerk. And I remember watching that clock tick sometimes as every hour went past because some of the work was pretty menial and difficult. Um, but the Centre of Australia was just just gorgeous. Alice was beautiful. So you were in Alice Springs? Yeah, surrounded by the um, McDonald Ranges. And I was able to then hop onto any tour bus and actually look and explore the area and made some good friends there too. It was it was eye-opening. And again, too, getting out of that little bubble of having grown up in Brighton, gone to Furbank Anglican School, gone straight to Melbourne University, I actually do think it did open my horizons. And it didn't hinder you in obtaining articles the following year? No, I'd, I'd done a number of summer clerkships and I, my greatest synergy was with Middleton's Moore and Bevins, as it was then, and uh, they happily um, they offered me um, articles and they were happy to give me a, year, a year's grace in relation to that. And it was during articles that family law really took a hold of you. You loved it, you enjoyed it more than the other rotations you did. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Well, it's really interesting. I think back in those days we were so lucky to go into different um, areas of law, different fa- so different areas of the firm. So family law for me, though, was exciting because I was I had a lot more leeway. It was a new practice. It was small, so I was given a lot more opportunities. And um, having actually rotated in commercial, um, in property, equity, and, com- and I also practised in commercial litigation, what family law represented to me was an amalgam of all the different disciplines. So I, I realised you had to know um, enough about commercial, for example, to know to go and ask somebody because we have accrued jurisdiction and family law. We could cross-vest back in those days so I could actually run um, a statement of claim uh, combined with a uh, family law application if there was a, an assault, for example. So I found it very, very stimulating but also too I think it was the freedom and meeting people um, and clients right from the start in person because we were such a small practice. So I actually had files and by the time I was a third year I had, a, I had my own practice but I was very... Very, very much supported by the likes of Noel Ackman QC, John Yudorovic QC, David Brown, Paul Guest. They were very, very good to me. Dan Sweeney, Joe Mullally, identities who are still, some of them are still with us um, and still practising, but they were just incredibly generous and probably saw my diligence and knew that I was happy to work on a weekend and I wanted to make things perfect and to learn. And so they were incredible mentors to me as well. Sally, as an article clerk and first-year solicitor at Middleton's, you had the most amazing experience where you became involved in a complex, high-level case for an American client whose son was removed from the US to Australia by the mother. Can you tell us about it? I find it astounding that an article clerk and a first-year solicitor 
can be driving such a case. It, it, it was, and I think it was one of those um, opportunities that really just fell in my lap. I think that on the face of it, this child had been missing for some time. The Hague Convention was still a very new treaty that um, deals with parental child abduction, and the partner landed, gave it to me, and said, "Look, th- there's nothing in this. You can you can have this." <laughs> And they were fateful words because having met the client and actually having to help forensically unpick what was happening with the federal police who were searching for the child, uh, there began it began to have legs. And what what I really discovered and what what was happening is that the law couldn't adequately deal at that time. It was very clunky dealing with missing children or from parental abduction. But what I did find, there was a lack of coordination between the federal police, the state central authority in Victoria, which was then the Department of Community Services, and the Attorney General's Department in Canberra. There was just a little bit of a disconnect. Everyone wasn't working together as a team. I actually took the client and flew up to Canberra because the police actually felt that if they actually put an operational team onto this case after um, the client and I lobbied lobbied them a little. Um, They felt they would find this child, but they needed each segment and each party to this convention to work together. So I flew up to Canberra with with the client, with Jim. He could be identified because there was was a publication order that's still with us to this day. We flew up to um, Canberra and I remember meeting the identities, the head of that department, the Family Law Section Attorney General's Department, um, and they were just delightful, the people working there. And um, they said, no one's ever come up to see us before. (laughs) Again, I felt too that, again, it's a credit to those people in that department because they were welcoming, they listened to where the federal police were coming from, they listened to the facts, they knew they had an international convention and it was their brief on behalf of the Australian government to see it through and try and locate this child and return the child ostensibly to America if there weren't mitigating factors. So we all worked together as a team and we divided the um, work that needed to be done. I think the client really felt for the first time empowered. But for me, I didn't see the hierarchy there. I just saw everyone as a human being. But I must say people, I remember John Yudorovic in that case, gave me incredible strategic advice. They told me if anyone ever called me to say or to negotiate with me and to say we've got the child, that I was actually just to keep that person talking and and get as much information as possible. So as a young person, I felt a huge weight of responsibility because of this. It was quite a planned abduction, but he was um, incredible in the advice he gave me and had faith in me that I'd acquit it. I'd, I'd follow his advice. We might digress a moment here. Tell us about your grandfather. He was, I think, Melbourne's first and leading physical trainer. He ran a gymnasium. He he did physical training for footballers, cricketers, rowers, champion tennis players, etc. and had a big influence upon you and a person who maybe had um, given you confidence in yourself and, and an ability to challenge authority on occasions. Mm. His name was Stan Nichols. Can you tell us about him? He was so grounded and so down to earth and had hadn't had an education past 12 and was very conscious of that in some ways, but would tell me stories as a kid in terms of meeting many prime ministers. Um, He turned, I believe, Robert Menzies away from the Davis Cup uh, change rooms at one stage because Harry Hopman had told him no one's to come in. So an important part of my grandfather, though, was he also had your everyday Joe at 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 the gym. And so it had an amazing atmosphere. So I went there from when I was 14. And I would be training with um, Raylene Boyle, Chris Everett Lloyd would be there. He had um, Kevin Sheedy 
attending and, and um, his players. But all these identities were there. But the role modelling I got from my grandfather was everyone was treated the same. Uh, he had a way of bringing out the best of people, but also to his very direct and he would work out what a stumbling block was and he'd find a solution. Um, but he, he was also extremely humble and he liked other people succeeding. So I felt that he was just a tremendous role model in that way. And he was also very aware of his imperfections, I can tell you. And he was very open about that. And we'd we discussed those too. And he always seemed to have a knowledge of where people were at um, and, and could draw them out. Getting back to Middleton's and you as a young lawyer, mm. you said your grandfather, Stan Nichols, um, was a very direct person in dealing with other people, which is a quality uh, I suspect LEU have um, inherited from him. You used it as a young lawyer to get the firm, Middleton's, to send you to the World Congress in Family Law and Children's Rights in San Francisco as a third-year solicitor. Yes, I put in a submission <laughs> and I think Robert Desmond, who was a lovely, lovely man, um, but was quite conservative and rightly so, his managing partner at the time, uh, was quite um, surprised <laughs> that he needed to have a meeting with me and deal with this application. I did offer to pay for half of it, which was a fortune at that time. And Did um, they accept your offer? They did. They did. Because I think they saw that I had investment in the game. And um, I have to say, I think I'm, I think I have a little bit of largesse with my staff now because I want them to have the same experience. But going back then, it was good for me. I think they could see that I was serious about it. And it was having run that Caridi's case without really having the knowledge and, and having to learn on the job. Caridi's case was the Hague Convention case which took you to Canberra. That's right. Yeah. And having run that, I really then felt that the, um, there was work to be done, that I could learn from other people. I saw that this World Congress had um, a whole stream about the Hague Convention and that there were no Australian speakers. And I knew that some judges would be going, um, but I thought, I really want to go there and I really want to learn. And I also... So um, it had been explained to me by the people, um, the powers that be in the Attorney General's department that there was a private a panel which could actually provide for private solicitors to be on the panel where I had the potential to then run these cases for the, um, for the government as a private solicitor. And I thought that would just be fabulous because I just felt a passion for them. So I put all that to um, Robert and with great trepidation and <laughs> he sent me, um, and I do have to say that was 97, 98, we, I succeeded, we got on the panel, which was terrific. And um, i worked for many years with Andrew Strahm, who's now a family court judge. I approached him and said, Andrew, I'm on this panel. Um, they can't pay much money for it. It's a government job, but it's fascinating. It's about international law. Um, I'd really love to work with you. And we worked beautifully together. I did brief other people, but Andrew developed actually quite a strong practice in international family law as a result. And he was fantastic to work with. And we were model litigants. It was, it was a great era. I really enjoyed doing those cases. From there, you move on to become a partner at Middleton's. Yes. Just paint that picture for us, how how those things occur within large firms? Well, way back then, 
I think the emphasis was on um, the commerciality of your practice and having a practice. And I think that's one thing very early on. Um, I think I was a bit disgruntled uh, and wanted to run my own race. And one of my friends said, well, look, stop complaining. Just go and build your own practice then. So I did. And So within the larger practice, mm, you built your own family law practice? Oh, completely. Oh, a significant family law practice. And um, I devise a marketing plan every year about what I would do. I um, And obviously the international work was, was part of it. And I began to build a little team underneath myself and hopefully a, a little level hierarchy and mentor younger practitioners, but I built a team. And I think at the same time I was coaching rowing. And I think there's there's something to be said about that team experience, that coaching and drawing the best out of people and actually creating teams. And obviously at the end of the day, creating a good product. So I began to run very large pieces of litigation, which again, I think require those logistical skills I showed earlier on with that Caridis case, the Hay Convention case. In building a practice like that, Where does the work come from? Is it word of mouth that people hear about you doing a good job, hear about you looking after your clients well? Or are are there referrals from maybe accountants or from other solicitors who don't do family law? How How does the build occur? That's how it did occur, largely extensively, and as I used to train the younger ones, it's from doing a really good job. So I would get quite a lot of work from QCs and from barristers who would be working with me. I think it's also trust. So I I still have a really strong relationship with my old firm, which is now K&L Gates, because of the years of trust I built up. If someone's mother or parent had an issue, they'd come say, do you have five minutes? And I would actually obviously give them more than five minutes and we'd try and nut out a solution. Also, the, say, for example, the commercial partners would know if I had a matter that required me to look at a constitution or a director's duties, I'd run up to them and say, look, I want this absolutely schmicko. How do I actually, how would you phrase it? This is what I want to achieve in an application. What are, Can you give me the main elements? So I just would have that commercial edge so they could see that I had the passion to do it right. And I wasn't afraid to go and ask for help. And I do think the barrister, barristers like the fact that I would try and get the brief to them way in advance or material to them in advance so they could check it um, and make sure that there were those little nuances that only barristers could pick up that I wouldn't as solicitors there in court every day. And sometimes, I mean, John would rip something apart early days, for example, John Udorovic, or Noel Ackman would go through it and find tooth comb. And as I became more senior, they might just change a few words and nuances. And they explained to me why. And I think that's why I got that following. But I also would actually then give seminars to accountants, work with psychologists. And that's how I think I built that trust, trusting relationship with third party referrals as well. One of the comments you have made is that at that time, you were working very hard and were able to give all of your attention to building your practice. Mm. Other women weren't as fortunate because of having children mm. and the firm was losing a great deal of what you refer to as grey matter Yes, because of that. Well, they were, they were losing. It's, it's interesting. I think it was two things. They were losing... Um, as they were merging, um, a lot of the older senior partners were becoming consultants. Um, I actually had a view about that as a young partner. I thought that that was a shame. I thought that even if you had a part-time partner, that could be someone who's a part-time mum. And um, I was quite vocal about that. Or somebody, I, I just felt I leaned upon the former managing partners and, and I felt that they were had a wealth of knowledge. I thought it was a shame that we were losing and bringing in the new partners and I think they should have still been around the table. Yeah. 
those with, as you say, the, mm. that corporate knowledge which is built up over generations. And, rela- yeah, and relationship skills and just that smarts that you have, someone who's been just working for so many years and being solution-driven and that work, just that wealth of experience. In 19, no, 2004, you opened your own firm, Nichols Family Lawyers. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that and what was your vision for the firm? I did it. We it was made very clear as um, Middleton's, but very nicely as Middleton's were expanding that the private client work would actually be um, segmented off. That, that we'd be given all the support in the world that um, we could take our practices. But eventually, in the future, even though we did well and we were light, that that wasn't the vision. They wanted to become global. They wanted to have large corporate clients, and so I read the play and um, wanted to move on a high, and I did. We had a fabulous party. <laughs> and and they've asked me back ever since for alumni chats and all sorts of things, which was great. But my vision was also, to, when we marketed Family Law, to use our resources not to take people to an elaborate lunch and, and wine and dine them, take them to the Kids Helpline Ball, for example, because it was so aligned. Because we were dealing with families, we are dealing with children, vulnerable people, I just thought I wanted to put all my resources into that type of marketing if it was to be done, but also to to actually, um, if there was a problem, to make sure that we actually addressed it on a pro bono basis. So the pro bono that I was actually able to do, I was doing at uh, Middleton's, which I was supported as long as I met my budget, I wanted to make it part of the partnership deed. So we actually um, have a large turnover that's devoted to um, pro bono and we've set up various clinics and that's really now taken off in a significant way. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers' lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. The, the complexity that grows up in the whole of our world but, and, and plays out in your world of family law, I find quite amazing. You have told us in preparation for today about issues involving sperm donation, LGBTQIA plus rights, raising children after breakdowns of same-sex relationships, transgender issues. It is really uh, staggering. I mean, and that those sort of changes have come about in your working lifetime. Well, I think that's where the family law can be quite exciting and the mental gymnastics can be um, challenging but but can be overcome. And I, what's been challenging for all family law solicitors is the legislation's often drifting behind all these modern family changes. So the family law jurisdiction is actually governed by a welfare jurisdiction called Parents Patriae. It goes back to the days of the Chancery Courts. And so often I've been a little bit of a hobby horse of mine that if anything that's concerned with a child's welfare and, and looking through the lens of a child, we can actually, we have jurisdiction to deal with. And it's actually trying to then play, play a little catch up, a bit of social engineering as well, to make sure that um, vulnerable people aren't mistreated and that um, good parents are recognised, but also if you keep looking through the lens of the child, you can, I think, navigate some of these different social norms. But, for example, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, our firm was quite active in, in actually campaigning for equal rights and, again, very humbling to be an ally and to have to advocate for someone to have the same legal right as I do to be married, I think was really sad in this day and age, but but very happy to mm. very happy to help. Mm. But can you tell us about cases where issues about sperm donation or 
LGBTQIA rights have come into play and how you've dealt with them? Because you are working in an area without set guidelines at the moment, I assume, or or legislation. We do. It's, it's catching up. It's catching up. But, but we did have to work in the old days, even, even de facto, de facto might be governed by the Property Law Act and same-sex couples were actually governed by just laws of equity. So back when I started. But there's been huge developments where de facto same-sex relationships were then re- recognised, um, de facto relationships were then given the the same status as married couples. So it, it, there is a bit of catch up, but there's often gaps in the law. And there was one case that I worked on where I, probably now t- uh, 10 years ago, where I had a client who'd actually donated sperm to a single mum. And under the Victorian Act, that father had no rights or obligations to his son, but under the Family Law Act, there appeared to be a gap where he would actually have, um, if there was no intervening de facto relationship, he would actually be a father under the Commonwealth Act. So there was actually a conflict between the two acts, and if there is, then the Commonwealth Act actually trumps the Victorian Act. Now, it was interesting in running this case, a few of my lesbian friends were cross because they thought I was interfering with lesbian rights, but I said, no, just single mothers. (laughs) And I felt really awful about that, but I said, no, but, but again, too, you have to bring it back to look at a child's right to know where they've come from. And that that became actually a real, uh, really interesting case, a groundbreaking case. And uh, the law was changed to recognise fathers and and really looking at a child's right to have a relationship with both parents. Sally, very interestingly, you were involved in the first transgender case in Australia in the name of Ree Alex. What was it about? Alex was a, a child who was suffering from gender dysphoria, which is, as we know now, is a child who doesn't identify as their biological being. They want to be the opposite gender and they've had struggles traditionally from when they're actually very young. Often they report struggling with their identity from when they're about four. has nothing to do with sexuality, just their gender. So this, I was presented with this case where this child was a ward of the court and there had been no case to really determine whether or not the government, who were actually ostensibly the parents of, the, of this child, could actually make a decision for this child to firstly identify as trans, but also back then there'd be a series of treatment was being recommended by the medical practitioners looking after this child that would actually impact on that child's fertility. So when I was presented with that case, I guess it's a situation of reminding us about why family law is so interesting, but also the legislation just didn't provide directly for these types of cases. So I, because the fertility was going to be impacted upon, I identified this case as falling under a special medical procedure case um, because there was case law in relation to parents not being able to make decisions about Um, their children when fertility was to be impacted. So there was a long line of cases and it's just been changed relatively recently in a case called Ray Kevin where children needed to go through the court because parents couldn't make the decisions that impacted on them in that way. But it's meant that I've met all these fascinating kids um, and I feel very passionately about their wish to identify and have worked with the doctors who have been assisting them. But it's it's interesting. It's very controversial now, I know, but for those children that we were acting for at the time, um, they needed to have that court intervention and it was, again, another very stimulating, interesting area. When these cases come up now, does a court make the decision on whether there can be some medical procedure carried out or 
How's the decision ultimately made? Well, what, what was advocated for, and again, at the 2009 World Congress, this World Congress kept popping up, we actually brought this issue before um, the World Congress and looked at what all the different countries were doing because we were the most interventionist country. So the trans kids, it was traumatic enough to actually have to come out to want to identify, but then to have to have the families go through a court process to get permission for this treatment was considered a little bit barbaric. And so what ended up happening is that a a test case ran before the full court of the family court and it was agreed that if a child was guilt competent, that they understood the consequences of this treatment and generally if they were about 16 when they were starting puberty blockers, then they could actually make that decision based on the medical advice without court intervention. There are still cases where one parent might vehemently disagree or um, the doctors might disagree. There's a little bit of a debate, but at the moment um, it's now a medical decision. Made by? The doctors in consultation with, and, and they believe the child's guilt competent. And guilt competency means they understand the consequences, they're mature enough of their treatment. So it's actually their decision. It's a child's decision based on medical advice. Would I be right in assuming that it's something which is still very much in flux and may may continue to be controversial for the foreseeable future? It is. It is, particularly because you're impacting on someone's ability to procreate, to have, to have babies, um, and I, I think it will be for a while. Yeah. In this sort of area and other areas, you've been very active in an educational role through podcasts, radio programs, etc. Mm. Could you tell us about that? I mean, I, I, I assume it's not. Well, I guess it raises the profile of Nickel Family Law, but it doesn't directly have a commercial benefit for you. No, it doesn't, but I think it's just so important and I think that's something I've been passionate about that when I've identified an issue in a case, rather than just resting on on our laurels, you want to try and fix it. You want to see what other people are doing. So with the transgender cases, we certainly, working with the doctors, brought all the specialists that we could identify, all the, the Royal Children's Hospital identified as being pertinent in this area and getting everyone to look at best practices. So that's something I've been passionate about. When we had Groth and Banks, which was the um, sperm donor case, which was a where we highlighted a conflict that was not known widely, particularly amongst the IVF clinics, they were giving actually the opposite advice at the time. This was the conflict between the Commonwealth law and the state law? Yes, where um, so the state IVF clinics, based on the ART Act at the time, were saying, look, you do realise if you do donate sperm that you won't be have any parental rights to the donors and to, the, for example, the single mothers, they would be reassured by the ART Act, Victorian Act, well, they, the donor won't actually have any parental responsibility. So, yeah, I thought it was really important after that case that we immediately educated the community. So we did um, a Modern Family live session at our office with Joy, the um, LGBTIQ plus um, community radio. And it was wonderful. We actually had donors attend. We actually had, it was also a push for people to actually celebrate rainbow families, but to learn about them, which is so, so important. For me, podcasts and seminars can be a great form of advocacy. In COVID especially, I remember talking to the CEO of WIRE at the time, Julie Kuhn, and we thought, what is going to happen to victims of family violence? That's a women's information referral exchange. And we were worried about um, victim survivors being stuck with perpetrators because of the lockdown rules. 
and also a lot of the courts were closing and there was a misinformation. I had clients saying, look, I've just been received this text from my husband, ex-husband, who's been violent, saying I can do whatever I want, I'm not going to return the children because your courts are closed. So what we did is we actually put out, we unpacked COVID in terms of who was most vulnerable and that's where we set up our podcast series. I had the AFP Identities and Cyber Safety talk about cyber safety with Vince Papaleo, trying to unpack any issue we thought might impact on people. And it was really fulfilling that we did it. It was quite raw. We didn't have the skills that um, you've got in your podcast series, <laughs> but we did actually have a brilliant young film directing student who was working with us at the time. And it was lovely to have him work with us. He was, it was terrific. You mentioned WIRE, the Women's Information Referral Exchange. Can you explain for me, because I've never heard of them before, what does WIRE do? Oh, they're fabulous. They, um, they've been around for a long time and they look after, they have a, a phone service where they have trained um, counsellors to take phone calls to direct women who are in crisis, whether it be housing, family violence, uh, legal issues. They also, I think, help with employment and vocation work as well because I think we donated computers to them one year to help women come and actually have a safe place to look for jobs, for example. But they do a lot of advocacy as well. They approached me when one of their CEOs retired to say that the North Melbourne Legal Service was closing, that actually provided financial and property family law advice, would we consider helping set up a clinic, legal clinic with them? So we did. So we've always, I've always worked in with them. They're, they've got amazing reach, but I've also learnt a lot working with them about victim survivors as well. We've been talking about these fascinating cases and, and controversial cases in areas of sperm donation, LGBTQIA plus rights, etc. But I assume, Nichols Family Lawyers, that's a part of what you do, but I'm assuming the majority of what you do is family law as we know it to be. We do, we do, but it's it's interesting. I think that our ability to be agile helps us with your standard cases. You, know, you need to have the empathy. You need to be every case is different and turns differently. So I think that it's really important. And we do do a lot of the larger cases and we do the, what's called the house and garden cases, if you like. But I think this advo advocacy just gives us a passion and just yeah, that agility that you really need to find a solution in every case that comes in front of you. This is a question off the top of my head, Sally. Percentage of your clients who are male and percentage who are female? Equal. Equal? Mm. So if I'm a male who's going through a relationship breakdown, I might tactically think, oh, I'll use Nickel Family Lawyers because uh, <laughs> it's a firm of women. Have you got male partners? We haven't got male partners yet. I feel awful. Poor, poor, poor male partners. Um, I was, it's just such a funny thing to say, be apologetic for it. Um, we've, we're all, have all female partnership. Um, most of us are parents, some with very young children, which I'm very proud to say. But we do actually have a male senior associate and we do have male employees in form of associates and accounts clerk. And my CFO is male. <laughs> but we, we don't, we don't um, but it's not deliberate. We get the best person for the job. <laughs> Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting.
and, and how have you juggled? In You grew up in the generation, professionally, you grew up in the generation where women were starting to say, we shouldn't be discriminated against because we're having children. We should be able to have full rights as a partner in a firm. It's a difficult one, or it was a difficult one, certainly back then when you were a, a young lawyer. How have you juggled it within your own firm? Well, I think to to walk the talk, I was very passionate about part-time partnership back in Middleton's days, even though it didn't impact on me, because I just felt we were losing out in not having female partners. And that was, in essence, they were just having children. So in terms of actually they needed to be, I felt, running on the spot whilst they were um, on maternity leave. And if anyone was to look at their performance, just just judge it from when they left to um, when they were coming back. And I thought there were some strategies that could have been employed. I've just felt being within a smaller firm and being able to control it, that we can offer all sorts of supports to our fabulous female partners. And I actually just feel now, particularly, we've always been so flexible that we actually get, if we provide people with family support, they're at peace, they're very motivated to to do well. We, it simply hasn't been an issue, part-time partnership. I've made one partner a partner with a three-month-old baby recently, Catherine. You I know. appointed a partner when the baby was three months old. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, she's just, she's fabulous and on the merits and, but also to what we do is we unpack what can we do to support you. During COVID for those two years, I missed all the partners, but there were children in the background, as we all know. So a lot of firms have adjusted to um, the family, I think, organically because of COVID, but we certainly um, were doing that a long time ago. Sally, in practical terms, what does it mean to support a mother with a three-month-old who was also a partner at your firm? Well, I think part of, part of the, the delivery for every single partner or every employee is to actually have the individual conversation and to work out what do they need to be able to succeed. So being a partner means you're leading a team often of people, but if you're a part-time partner, we need to work together. So Catherine, who is a partner and is just um, exceptional, she and I, I love working on files together. So I'll have her back on the days that she's not working and I'll run the case. And with this, we have a great collaboration. But also too, she needs to, she's very vocal about what she needs. And I think with COVID, what we've actually come to is that we are hugely flexible. We need to have um, a check-in point with um, all of our younger people. I think face-to-face engagement is so important for our younger team, especially, and for clients too. But we also have that opportunity to work from home and that incredible flexibility. If, for example, the little one's sick, but they're still able to work comfortably from home, it's a non-issue. We have the um, ability to work remotely. And if that's a supportive thing to do, we will support that to the hilt in terms of what more can we do to help you on that day. Sally, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in today and enlightening me as someone who didn't do much family law and didn't like it to understand what a fascinating area it is, what an extremely worthwhile area it is in helping people who need help in the most um, difficult situations and the way the law's evolving in this area to be really dynamic and interesting been a wonderful time. Thanks, Ellie. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. 
Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio, and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years, and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today. 